it's my pleasure to be able to introduce Jamie Kinman this morning, uh, who will be opening up the Word of God to us from Galatians chapter 6. And Jay, uh, Jamie has asked that I read our sermon text before he does that, so let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then... His reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word. And our responsibility toward it is to simply hear it, obey it, believe it, and trust in you. But we can't do that apart from your Spirit's work. And so we ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon this room, this gathering of people, that all those who hear, those who are born again, would be strengthened in their faith, and that those who are far from you would be redeemed. Lord, we pray as well and, and claim your promise that you, you've said that if anyone, if anyone lacks wisdom, uh, let him ask God and you give to all men freely, but let him ask in faith. And so we do believe in your promise, Father. We ask for your wisdom that you have promised to give uh, for after this service, uh, our decision uh, to, uh, on whether or not to build a building or not. Uh, so, Father, we ask that you would guide us and help us to know what you want us to do with that particular question. Father, I pray that you would just pour out your, your power on Jamie as he preaches. I pray that you would uh, kind of allow him to get out of the way and let us see Christ, because it is when we see you that we become like you. And so, Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, church, for the gift, the joy to uh, come before you and open up the word this morning. I promise that I do not take it for granted. So this text can be highly practical. And um, it's not only practical, 
That would be a mistake. But it can be practically helpful. And if we consider it from this certain vantage point, which I'm about to submit to you, it's going to help us better understand what it is that's being communicated. So, so I, I have found it helpful I've been, as I've been trying to process Galatians 6, 1 through 10. I found it helpful to think of it in a certain way, uh, as sort of an outline for how to walk through a particular type of encounter with a brother or sister in Christ. That's been helpful to me. Maybe it'll be helpful to you as well, and that's kind of the way that I'm going to look at it and, and deal with it this morning. So, so if it was an outline, here's the gist of the outline as I understand it. Up, down, up, down. Maybe that'll help you, um, maybe that'll help you process this. Uh, or remember it in the future. <clears throat> Make up your mind beforehand. Beat down your pride in real time. Raise up the guard against sin and lie down in peace. So the first two take the most effort. And so we're going to spend our, uh, the most time on those this morning and then we'll sort of sprint through the finish. We'll bog down in the, in the second one to really unpack it and sprint through to the finish. So let's jump right in. Make up your mind beforehand. Paul starts out by saying, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a believer being caught in a transgression. However that looks, however that happens, the specifics we don't know, but that's what we're talking about. So to, to sort of frame our mindset, as we begin to make up our minds beforehand as to how we're going to walk through a situation like this, let me uh, tell you a, a quick story. <clears throat> I'm the youngest of four siblings. I have an older brother, Jeremy, 10 years older than me, a sister, Jennifer, seven-ish years uh, older than me, and another brother, Jake, who's here, two years and two days older than me. So when, uh, when me and Jake were young, we were over at our grandparents' place, and my oldest brother, Jeremy, 10 years older, uh, he, was, mm, he was working on this technique for treating fire ant mounds in the backyard. <laughs> for, some, for some reason, he was on the lawnmower. I don't know. He just thought that was the way to travel or something. So he, would, he was driving the lawnmower over to a fire ant mound, and then he had a can of gas and a book of matches, and he would dump gasoline out on this mound, sufficient to, you know, do the job, I guess, and then he would strike that match, and he'd throw it down, and boom, that thing would go up in flames. So, I had to try it, and I did. Probably eight to ten years old at this time, where my parents were, I don't know, but we were doing it anyways, and uh, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Upon, upon utilizing this technique, it felt good. And it felt right. As a sort of aggressive young man, 8 to 10 years old, you got some stuff pent up inside, you don't know what to do with it, so we'll catch things on fire. And not only did it feel good, not only did it feel right, but man, it looked cool. And um, maybe I couldn't find a fire ant mound. Maybe there was a, I don't remember the timeline, how it worked out. But I remember trying it on a red ant colony. It did not work. <clears throat> it, 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 didn't, it didn't solve 
the problem. It didn't get rid of the ants. And the reason for that's probably obvious. Because red ant colonies burrow down to the very center of the earth, apparently. Right? And so the problem was much deeper under the surface than our technique was able to reach. It was the wrong approach. And as it turns out, the gasoline and the matches were the wrong tools for the job. And, not only that, but there was a strong possibility of the whole thing literally blowing up in our faces. So our text this morning is attempting to offer us a similar caution as we deal not with pests, but with dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me... Let me make sure we're on the same page about sort of the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Guys, we love calling people out. We love canceling people when they blow it, stacking up lists of reasons why we are justified to do so, which is to say that we love to pour out the gasoline and strike the match because it feels good. It feels right. And then let's be honest, done in the proper contest, Context, it kind of looks cool. But that's simply not the way of Christ, guys. Not only that, but it usually blows up in our faces or at least fails to treat the depth of the problem. Are you with me? So what we need to do this morning is we need to let the Spirit use the Word to massage some truths about life down into our souls that are going to run counter to a lot of the standard ways that we operate as we encounter people who are in trying, burdensome, and yes, even sinful, especially sinful situations. So as if you remember last week, we sort of focused on addressing a certain type set of sins just briefly last Sunday um, in Galatians 5, we're, we're going to spend more time focusing on what, what could be thought of as, as a set of sins kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum in some sense, but not foreign to this series because it deals with the idea of self-righteousness. So what does the text tell us to do? If you don't mind, uh, I'm just kind of using the text as my outline. So Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. If anyone is caught in any transgression, what's another word for transgression? Sin. And and here's here's what Paul is telling us. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, he does not say, if this certain specific group of the elite among you are caught in a transgression... He doesn't say that. Or if they're caught in this specific list of permissible sins that we've come to accept, that's not what he says. He says if anyone is caught in any transgression. Can can we get something out of the way real quick? Okay, we need to to think about this at the outset. A little bit of a spoiler alert about life. Whether you believe it or not, every person that you know is a sinner. I'm telling you, it's crazy, right? But listen, listen, here's the reason why, obvious, right? But, but here's the reason why it's worth mentioning in this context. Because 
we get into this mindset where we start treating the people that we know, the people we go to church with, we have this like elevated standard that's even higher than the one that we impose on ourselves. And we get in this place where, where we get surprised. We get surprised when we find out that the people around us are sinners too. Why on earth are we so surprised? Isn't that silly? I want you to notice <clears throat> who Paul begins to appeal to first in this scenario. He says, if anyone's caught in any transgression, the first group of people he begins to address are you who are spiritual. Do you see that? What, what does that mean? Of course, we're not talking about spiritual but not religious. We're not talking about people who do yoga. That's not the context. You who live, this is, this is what I think Paul's getting at. He's talking to, to, to those who live and walk by the Spirit. That's simple enough. Those who are established as the more spiritually mature in the congregation. And what does he say next? How, how does he begin to direct this particular group of people immediately? Does he say, you who are spiritual, ruthlessly rip their heads off for their idiocy? Berate them into repentance. Maybe he goes the other direction, right? The more sort of churchianity way. He says, invite them to coffee and passive-aggressively flex your spiritual superiority at them. <laughs> Condescend them into repentance and then, and then pay for their coffee and make them feel so small. No, that's not what he says. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. Paul is giving us the aim of our encounter with this transgressing brother or sister. From the outset. It's restoration that you're after, he says. He says, man, before we go any further, lest we think otherwise or simply not think at all. And rather than trying to work off of instinct or letting the flesh decide our aim in the moment, all of those are mistakes. Paul makes it plain. Our aim is restoration. Let that be settled in our hearts and minds beforehand. I made reference to Galatians 5. Remember, we're coming off of that, that famous fruit of the Spirit passage. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I, I, you know, I, I don't think I'm reading, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think that it's relevant, the two that are listed together at the end. Paul might have just said, in no particular order, here are the fruit of the Spirit. But man, gentleness and self-control listed together, that, that gets to me. Because we, there is no gentleness apart from self-control. Have you ever realized that? As your self-control wanes, your ability to be gentle with those around you, especially those who are trying on your patience, also wanes. And if you think about it, gentleness is actually rooted in strength. I know, I mean, I have a son, I have a daughter, many of y'all have met both of them. They're lovely, wonderful, excellent children, but they are still children. 
and, and so I find myself, when my, when my self-control begins to wane, my, uh, my ability to be gentle toward them also falters. I get, I'm the only one, though, right? So when self-control is present, and we get our self-control from the Spirit, not from self. It's kind of a misnomer. When self-control is present, our ability to deal with one another in gentleness, man, it skyrockets. Up, down, up, down. Make up your mind beforehand. Now let's, let's talk about beating down your pride in real time. Paul goes on to say, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, listen up, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. That's a mouthful. <clears throat> here's, what, here's what I think's going on there. <clears throat> I think that Paul is anticipating our natural tendencies as we encounter people in this type of situation. A, a, a believer, a brother, a sister who's been caught up in some kind of transgression. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, etc. Here's the thing. If you've ever sat down across the table from a brother or sister who is transgressing, maybe they've come to you because they know that, they're that, that, that they mess up, they're trying to get this thing right. For me personally, as I have sat across the table from people who were sinning in all sorts of different ways. I've never been like, that sin sounds like a good idea. I feel tempted to do it now. Now, maybe there's a dimension of that. Maybe there's a time. I, I don't know. But, but just from the context of the verses around it, that doesn't seem like what Paul is talking about. I think that what Paul's getting at is, you know, there's a certain way that we're tempted to sin when we meet with someone who is caught up in some sort of transgression. One theologian put it like this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it to you in, in wild old English because it's fun. And then I'm going to translate it to you into real English. He said, that, he said this. <clears throat> Whence proceeds fierce insult or haughty sternness, but from this, that everyone who exalts himself in his own estimation and proudly despises others. Translation. Where does that stuff come from? But from this, that we're prone to fierce self-righteousness. And that's what's at the root of our harsh treatment of others who are sinning. Look, let, let me caveat before we go any further. I'm not saying that it's okay to be a Christian and live a wild, sinful life. That's not what we're saying. What we're dealing with right now is something that is a problem in the church. All right, back on track. For if anyone thinks, Paul goes on, for if anyone thinks he's something, when he's actually nothing, he deceives himself. Being nothing is the reality of our estate and some, uh, to some degree. But Paul, what Paul's doing is he's making reference to the way that we compare ourselves, our righteousness, subjectively to those around us rather than the objective standard in Christ. If anyone thinks that he's something because of who he's around, 
when he's actually of a low estate, which we all are. Self-righteousness is an odd duck, isn't it? How, how on earth can this be? Human beings are so corrupt that we can be snatched off of the ledge, rescued from falling headlong into hell itself. We can acknowledge that we did nothing to earn that, never could have, and somehow we can still let that become a point of pride that gives us this superiority complex toward those who are around us. How can this be? You're not a Christian because you did a real good job. You're not a Christian because God was looking for some all-stars and picked you. I know you guys. When a brother or a sister comes to us burdened by their sin, we should be like, no wonder you're struggling. Look at where we've come from. Let me, let me tell you about how I have struggled too, and let's walk through this thing together. Why not? The other way is not really working for us. Let's try this one. Seems, seems to be what Paul has in mind. And, and that's, why, that's why as Paul is unpacking this, he explains this whole dynamic, this whole thing, this whole event, whatever you want to conceive of it as, in these terms, verse 2. <clears throat> he said, I think that's verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Hmm. Bear one another's burdens, church. This is connected to the idea of love that Jake was talking about last week. Love, love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 15, uh, verses 1 and 2, that's another place that Paul was, was examining this same sort of idea. He says, <clears throat> in that place, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So there are a couple of other categories that we can deal in that might be helpful as we're sort of sorting through this this morning. Uh, Paul gives us these two, strong, those who are strong, and those who are weak, who are stumbling, who are failing. So I, I want to I give you an illustration that hopefully will be helpful because I realize it's possible that many of you are, are the really strong. You're not really the burdened type. And maybe you literally don't understand what it's like to feel that way. We need you guys because I'm not like that. So to, to that group, uh, here's what I want you to do. little little exercise. We're not going to get weird. I want you to think of a burden-typed person, Christian person that you know, Someone that you just don't understand why they are the way they are about things. Why is everything such a challenge for this person? Why is everything such a struggle? Why are they this, that, that? I want you to picture that person in your mind for a moment, and I want to give you a little illustration. <coughs> I um, like to ride my bike on the trailway. I ride further than a non-bike non rider. I ride much 
a, a much less distance than a real bike rider. Does that make sense? So I'm kind of in the, that doesn't make sense, but that's okay. So, so I have this one section that I really like to ride. I go out. It's eight quick miles, four out, four back. takes about 45 minutes. Load the bike up and go home. Every once in a while, I like to, I, well, every once in a while, a few times, uh, I've decided to, to ride 20 miles. So 10 out, 10 back. And um, I did that earlier this summer, probably July, early July, something like that. And um, I... I had ridden 10 miles out. I know about where that spot is. I turned around. I started coming back. And within the 11th mile, I got a flat on my back tire. <clears throat> Fortunately, this time, not like the time right before, uh, I had everything that I needed to, to fix it. So I, I, you know, I get over to the side of the trail, turn the bike, you, you know, the whole thing. If you ever changed a tube on a, on a bike. But it added probably 30 more minutes not to mention, every time I've ever, tr I've ever decided to go 20 instead of 8, I've never planned it out. I just decided to do it, just on a whim. So this thing is stretching on for a long time, much longer than I'd planned. <clears throat> so as I was riding back, after I fixed the, the tire and all that stuff, I got to about the mile 16, 17, something like that, and... I hit this particular section on the trail that's always a challenge for me. Now, remember, remember context. I'm set about 17 miles in. It is hotter than blue glazes. I've been out there forever because of the tire and everything else, not to mention that my knees have been aching for like the last eight miles. <coughs> Something about this section, it's, it's rocky, it's unlevel, it's uphill, it's not shaded. And so as I'm riding through here for a brief, brief second, man, I thought about giving up, at least temporarily. Just getting off and walking, maybe stopping altogether. I don't know exactly what, what I had in mind. But as, as this was sort of going on, a little voice kind of swept through my brain and said, hey, man, don't quit. Just stay upright wasn't the voice of God. It was my own self, okay? But you understand. So I just, I downshifted to the lowest gear, uh, and, and I just kept trying to uh, keep my legs moving fast enough to, to keep me from falling over. Here's my point. There are some here this morning who feel like that. You keep hitting that same spot in the trail that, for whatever reason, is always a challenge for you. Or maybe it's, maybe it's a new place that you've not been before. And you might have come in here this morning thinking about giving up. You might have walked through this week thinking about giving up, whatever that looks like. Getting off and walking, stopping altogether. I, I don't know what that means for you. But what I do know is that you just need, you are probably desperate for one little voice that says, don't quit. Just, just stay upright. To the really strong in the room, can I say that maybe they need you to be that voice. Maybe they need you to run up beside them and say, hey, I remember that patch of the trail. I was there not that long ago. Don't give up. Just keep pedaling. 
You, you, can, you can be that for someone. You can be a burden bearer in that way. You can be a sane, encouraging voice in a whirlwind of ugly discouragement. That is our current cultural moment. We don't have to be like that. And not only that, remember why we're even talking about this. Romans 15, 1 and 2, we who are strong have an obligation, a duty, a responsibility to bear with the failings of the weak. Not to please ourselves. It's not about us pleasing ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up because he needs it. What are we going to do without each other? Now look at verse 3 from there. I say look at. You're probably not looking at it. Paul says that. He says, he says, Please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Then he says, for Christ. This is why you're doing that. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Here's here's what that means in in a word. Christ is our model for burden bearing. And not only that, he's not just a model. Let's not ever talk about Jesus like all he is is a really good example for us. That's bad theology. So not only that, but man, having our sins and burdens borne by someone has a peculiar effect, and it's probably the opposite of what you think. Because in our minds, we think someone needs to be crushed under the weight, and and, and there's a a degree to which that's true. You have to feel the weight of your sin, right? We're not saying that's not true. But there's something that happens when our burdens are borne. It has a peculiar effect on us. And here's, in part, what it is from 1 Peter verses 21 through 25. Peter said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now listen to this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Listen. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Do you see that? Sins bore living to righteousness, dying to sin. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Which is to say that if you are a Christian person, then you know the burden bearer. You know the one man in the history of the world who actually was fully righteous in himself. And listen to what he did. He did not act in a self-righteous manner. He chose to come down and fully identify with and understand us in our own experience. He went to great lengths to do that. He stepped down out of his high place of strength into our weakness. And in Matthew 11, he doesn't say, man, after seeing all this, you know, you get your sin and stuff together on your own and then then come talk to me. Thank God that he doesn't do that. We would be sunk. Instead of that, Matthew 11, this guy says, this guy says, hey, to the weary and the burdened. And you know, I bet that included sin. 
He says to, to, to that group of people, he says, you guys come to me so that I can give you rest. They're already burdened. They don't need help feeling burdened. He says, you bring that burden to me. Let me bear it. He, he piles them up on his own back, and he allows God to crush him under the burden of our sins at the cross so that we don't have to be crushed under them anymore. So why do we like to be burdened and hamsters for people? What is, what is that? Piling up burdens on people's backs, causing them to, to bear their own. Say, you got to bear your own burden. Lift all this first, then you can come to Jesus. That is so incredibly backwards, right? It, we need to be gospel-minded in this and not worldly-minded. So when you bear one another's burdens, to, to try to put it in, in four concise points, <clears throat> when you bear another's burdens, number one, you aren't doing anything Jesus hasn't already done himself. And number two, you certainly aren't doing it to the extent that he did it. But, number three, you are deeply identifying with the mission of the Savior as he came to seek and save that which was lost and to bring back the one sheep from its wandering. And number four, the primary way, this is, this is the most important. This is where we've been heading. The primary way that you walk through the burdens of another with another is to guide them to the burden-lifting realities of the gospel. Don't, don't try to lift those yourself because you can't do it. And here's the crazy part. This is what I was getting at before. It's actually in finding relief from the burden of sin in the gospel that people are led away from their sins. Isn't that counterintuitive? Of course it is, because it's the gospel and God's smarter than us. But that leads us to the next point. Up, down, up, down. So make up your mind beforehand. Beat down your pride in real time. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, I've coughed the wrong way. Raise up the guard against sin. So remember, if, 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 if we're thinking of this passage or if we're using it as a tool for a sort of real-time guide in a one-on-one in -on -one encounter with a struggling brother or sister, um, this is a good order to work in. So, so everything we've talked about up to this point. But then lest we think that this approach is, is a bit lopsided, that, that would be maybe a fair critique up to this point, uh, Paul goes on to issue this warning, and so should we. He says, beginning in verse 6, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal Paul says something that is insanely important to this process. Four simple words. He says, God is not mocked. It is through his kindness that we are led to repentance. At least he intends his kindness to lead us to repentance. But he will not have you to presume upon his kindness indefinitely. 
He will not be duped. He cannot be duped or manipulated. The true condition of your heart is laid bare before him. He is not a gullible old grandpa. He is the warrior king of all creation, and don't you forget it. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Unfortunately, not only does gospel burden bearing lead us to delight in Christ over our sins, but we are empowered by the very Spirit of God within us to overcome. So, so let me say, remember, we kind of have divided into some categories, strong, weak, self-assigned. Okay, I trust you. <clears throat> but let me say a word to the weak here this morning. It is absolutely the job of the strong to love you. I'm, I'm not getting on to you. Don't, don't hear me doing that. It is the job of the strong to love you, empathize with your struggle, encourage you, etc. But it is also the job of the strong to guide you away from wallowing in your burdens and sins. Strong, do not take that as license to, uh, to be harsh. But to the weak, you have to understand that that's what we want to do. We want to just wallow in it. And that's part of what Paul means by sowing to the flesh. Jen Wilkin put it uh, really concisely, so I'll just let her say it. Um, she said, delight yourself in lawlessness, and your disordered desires will govern you. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you new desires. Namely, desire for himself. Which is not going to lead you astray. One, one kind of final point on that. Um, remember we said restoration is the aim of the spiritually mature. That's absolutely true. But remember, maybe not remember, but maybe know this or observe this, that there's no biblical allowance for true restoration apart from true repentance. Repentance is simply saying, sin is over there. That's the way I've been going. God is over there. I'm going to go that way. It's as simple as that, right? As simple as that. Okay. Up, down, up, down. Make up your mind beforehand. Beat down your pride in real time. Raise up the guard against sin. Lie down in peace <clears throat> with some practical application. Verses 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good for, in good, uh, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Here's what Paul's saying, very simply. When we're talking about this process, when we're talking about encountering someone who's been caught up in transgression, trying to walk through the Christian life, trying to overcome sin ourselves, it's very simple. Trust God and don't give up. That might seem overly simplistic, and maybe it is. 
but how many of our burdens and anxieties would be lifted if we believed that we could do that? Trust God and don't give up. Especially to the strong in this situation because look, I've been walking with people for years who are doing the same stuff they were doing 10 years ago. And I'm just like, I love you, but you're dumb. You know? But in this text, we, we, see, we see God promising to make good on our Christ-driven, spirit-saturated efforts to pursue the highest good of those around us. And I just got to believe that it's going to happen at some point. At some point, it's going to happen. So just keep doing these things that you know are right and trust the Lord to make good on them. Listen, you can't deliver anyone from their sin. You cannot do it. But God can. And this is why we can lie down in peace at the end of the day, at the end of our lives. You, you can't put sin to death in you. You cannot do that. But God can. And this is why we can lie down in peace at the end of the day, at the end of our lives. Because we've entrusted ourselves and our efforts to him. So trust God and don't give up. But also, trust God to carry your burdens and go there with a burden-bearing friend. We, this thing was never intended to be a solo sport, right? Christianity is not a solo sport. It is a team effort. But not only that, guys, this battle against sin, it can be won. And if you're in Christ, it will be won because really it has been won. Your ultimate victory over sin has already been accomplished by Christ in the gospel. Now we just, we just ask the Spirit, beg the Spirit to apply that reality to our hearts and empower us to live in victory over sin, which has already been purchased. Our future is guaranteed. We win in the end. So a parting question and then a few quick practical considerations. Are you hanging on to this sin because you don't trust God with it? What's God going to do if I give it to him? He's trustworthy. The word tells us so much. Are, are you hanging on to this because you just don't know how or where to start? That's why we said, man, grab a friend and run toward Christ together. Run toward Christ together. Okay, uh, let, let me wrap up with four quick practical considerations, and I'll go through them really quick. <clears throat> Number one, um, and these are particularly for, uh, for you if you find yourself as the spiritually mature in this situation, okay? Number one, think in terms of loving, not dealing. I've heard a pastor recently answer the question, how do you deal with difficult people? And he had the best response. He said, you know, Jesus didn't say deal with one another as I have dealt with you. Right? He said, love one another just as I have loved you. And Jesus called that a commandment. That's something worth thinking about. Number two, 
Maybe you've heard this before, but the person in front of you is not a problem to be solved. They're not a machine that has a malfunction, but they're a person that needs love and compassion from a saint that they're choosing to trust. Number three, we are intended to be burden bearers. I made reference to this earlier. Not burden enhancers. Which one are you? If, if you thought honestly about how people feel after spending time around you, do you think that they would honestly answer that they find you to be a burden bearer or a burden enhancer? Decide which one you want to be and ask God to take you there. And last, number four, when you don't know what to do, and there will be plenty of times when you don't know what to do. Just get to the gospel and hunker down. Gather yourself and your friends up underneath the finished work of Christ, however that looks, and figure it out from there. Can I pray for you?